listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. chapter number 2 verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with us. Uh, first, Paul's going to show us uh, who we were before we came to know Jesus. So if you're a Christian today, if you're a follower of Jesus, these first few verses of chapter number 2 is going to be a look back at who you were before Christ so that you might better appreciate who you are now in Christ. So let's jump right into the text. Here's what he says. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If, if you're familiar with uh, these epic movies like The Lord of the Rings, I, I remember when I first watched The Lord of the Rings, one, one of the things that, uh, that I remember out of that is before the movie even really gets going in the, in the plot, uh, you see this backstory. The, 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 the movie directors take you and they show you, uh, they, they show you what happened back then to set up what we're going to talk about now. It's those few minutes or few seconds really early on in the movie where they set up the plot that we're going to talk about today. That's what these first uh, four verses or first three verses of Ephesians uh, chapter number two does. It's a look back, and Paul's just sort of setting the scene and reminding us of our past. And here's what he says about every follower of Jesus. He says, remember back before you came to know Christ, and remember that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I find it interesting that Paul says that we were dead. I find that uh, an interesting way to, uh, to, to describe how we were before Christ. But it's very specific, and it's exactly how God wanted him to describe our condition as an unbeliever. We were dead. We weren't bad. We weren't uh, wicked in varying degrees. No, we were all dead in our sins. We were completely incapable of doing anything about our condition because in our sin, in the sphere of sin, we were dead. Now, uh, three letters signify a particular uh, uh, way of, of, of being taken in by uh, a doctor or, or some sort of, of medical official, and those three letters are D-O-A. DOA tells the, the, the person making the record or the person who's next in the chain of command that, that, that the individual has arrived already dead, dead on arrival. And I think that the scripture clearly teaches that we as human beings are all dead on arrival, even at our birth spiritually. 
because we're dead spiritually in our sin. I think uh, specifically the two verses that come roaring to my mind are Psalms chapter number 51, verse 5, where David talks about his being conceived in iniquity and, and how he was, he was uh, wicked in his mother's womb. In sin have I been conceived. In iniquity have I been formed in my mother's womb. Psalms 51, 5. And then also in Romans 5, when Paul is talking about how sin got its foothold in mankind, he talks about the first man who sinned. Sin entered into the world by one man and death through sin so that death has passed to all men through the activity and action of Adam to all mankind. I think the scripture and and then keying in on what he is saying here, I think it's pretty clear that all of us are born in sin. We're dead on arrival. Spiritually, we are dead in our sin. And then he goes on and says, and and let me describe to you how your dead life is at work because physically you are alive. Mentally, you are alive. You have emotional feelings and, and, and you have the, the, uh, the similarity to life. But Paul says, in actuality, you are dead spiritually. But here's what your life looks like. And he says that you're going about living according to the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. There's another show that's on right now. It's in its ninth or tenth season. It's called The Walking Dead. It's a zombie show. And it's about these people who are living in an apocalyptic time where Dead folks are actually walking around in zombied form. They look alive. They're moving about. They're, they're carrying on some type of activity. But everyone watching the show, and certainly those characters within the show, know that these people, while they seem to have life, they're actually dead men and women walking. They are moving about but with no real life. That's what Paul is saying here. You're moving about, or in your unbelief, you were moving about, carrying on life as you knew it, but as dead men walking. Here's what your life consisted of. First, he says, you're following the course of this world. Not not specifically the globe as we think about the world, but the world system that is corrupted and confused by sin. You were, as, as an illustration might be, just riding down the lazy river of the course of this world, going about with the system and the thinking and the worldview and just the way the world operates. It's how things work. It's the course of this world that is totally corrupted by sin. That's the life as dead men that you were walking according to the course of this world. You were just following the herd, following the course of the river of this world. Not only that, you were following the prince and the power of the air. He says in verse 2, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
Paul says, look around at the unbelievers in this world and understand that prior to faith in Christ, you too were living according to the dictates of this world and according to the sound of the beat of the prince of the power of the air. Most of us understand Paul to mean the enemy, Satan. In this particular level, he's going to call him the devil. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't think Paul is either, that all unbelievers are possessed by the devil. But what he is saying in in very Pied Piper type of language, that we're following the course of this world and we're following behind the dictates of the one who is setting the course of this world, the enemy of our soul, Satan, the devil. Before you knew Jesus, you were just following the herd. And who was the herd following? The Pied Piper of evil, the devil, who's setting the course of this world that is contrary to the holiness and righteousness of our Creator. Not only are you following the course of this world, not only are you following behind the leadership of the enemy, but he also says in verse number three that we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were living out the course and the passions, he says in verse three, of our flesh. We were, we were unknowingly following the course of this world. We were unknowingly following the melody of the enemy. But we were also following the course of our own fleshly desires. Doing and being and pursuing whatever we wanted. And we may look around and say, well, I'm not following wickedness like He is. I'm not pursuing my own wanton lust like she is. But before Christ, everything we were pursuing was still connected completely to our flesh, to what we wanted, to what we thought was right, to what we thought was righteous. And Paul says, it's dead men and women walking. The course of this world we're following the dictates of the enemy we're following, and we're just basically doing whatever we want. And here's what he says about that. In the last part of verse number three, he says, and were, that's us, and we were by nature children of wrath like all the rest of mankind. Jesus says, I find it interesting, in John chapter number three, verse number 36, Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son by belief in Him shall not see life and the wrath of God remains on him or her. This idea that in our sin, apart from God, dead in transgressions and iniquity and wickedness and incapable of doing anything about it on our own, Jesus says that we are in a state waiting for the wrath of God that is what we deserve. We remain having the wrath of God over us. And Paul says, we were by nature children expecting and waiting and having nothing to hope in but God's 
wrath. Out of this passage right here, and also in Romans chapter number 5 and verse number 6, it's where the doctrine of total depravity really finds its anchor points. This idea that apart from God's work, humankind is incapable of pursuing Him. Humankind is incapable of doing or being anything connected to the holiness and the righteousness of God. We are totally incapable. We're dead. That's where that doctrine comes from. Is that humankind has no ability in themselves because by sin we are broken completely. But verse 4 turns the table. That's just the setup. That's just remember the way you were. Remember the deadness that was you. Living a life that you thought was, was, was valid, but really was just following the course of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But verse 4 gives us the doctrine of salvation 101. And really is the subject of this first little section as he begins talking about uh, the, the, the way we've become what we are in Christ. Verse number 4 says, But... God, if we saw the way we were, now we're going to see the work of God. But God has done for us what we would have never done and could have never done for ourselves or anyone else. But God has done what we could not do. What has He done? He saved us. God has brought about Life and salvation for those who were dead and incapable of changing their situation. He's going to say, but God has saved us. But God in His work has done what we could not. And He sets this up by answering a question we won't even know to ask. He goes ahead and answers it. Why would God do this? What would motivate God to do this for dead, broken, wicked, in a state of enemy, in opposition against God? What would motivate Him to do anything at all for us? And He goes ahead and answers that even before we know to answer the question. Verse number 4, He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His Great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Why would God do anything for mankind who stood in stark and absolute and incapable opposition to his creator because of sin. Why would God want to do this at all? Paul tells us, because he's rich in mercy, he's full of love, and he is gracious to us. Mercy, love, grace. Mercy, it's withholding what we deserve. It's not giving us what is ours because of our sin. Love. It is that, it is that one directional love that is God's toward us 
with no expectation of return because we are incapable of returning His love in our state of sinfulness and death. And it is grace, it is favor that is given to us because of no merit of our own. Yes, God is holy. And because of that, He cannot, He can, He cannot have relationship or He cannot be in accord with sin. Yes, God is righteous. And because He is righteous, He can never be connected with anything that is less than His righteousness. And God is just meaning He will deal with sin according to His holiness, according to His righteousness, and He will bring about the condemnation that is due to sin. But at the very same time, the Bible says that God is merciful, loving, and gracious. Those two working together at the same time brought God to the place where salvation has been made available, but at the high cost of the blood of Jesus. You and I were dead in our sin, but God loved us. But God was merciful to us. But God was gracious to us. What is this that He has done for us? Verse number 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. God has made us alive. We didn't crawl to the top of the mountain and set our best before God and Him say, this is good enough, I'll receive you. No, God reached down into the death that we lived and pulled us out of death, making us alive with Christ. In Romans 5, 8, it says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 4, 17, Paul talks about the God who gives life to the dead. Jesus, in several different passages, talked about Himself as the resurrection and the life, saying that I am the way Jesus did. I am the truth. I am the life. John, speaking about Jesus, the author, says that, that Jesus in him was life. He says that, that he has come to give us life and that life in abundance. Jesus in his death and resurrection provides life for dead men and women. And it's new life that is brought about by God's work on our behalf. We're made new creations in this new life. According to 1 Corinthians 5, 17, God reaching into death and pulling us out. God's not resuscitating us. God's not like an EMT who finds us on the brink of death and then brings us, revives us back to life. No, we're dead on the table. We're in the, 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 the realm of the mortuary with no hope whatsoever. And God breathes new life into us by His mercy, by His grace, by His love through Christ. In His death and resurrection, that new life has been made 
available. And then he's going to say, not only has he made us alive, verse number six, and he's raised us up in him. God has raised us in the same way that he raised Jesus physically. He has raised us spiritually. He has, he has brought us from death to life by raising us up. He's made us alive by raising us. Not only has he raised us up from the dead spiritually, but the Bible says that he has, in verse number six, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has breathed new life into us. He has made us alive. God has raised us up to new life through the resurrection of Jesus. And God has seated us in Christ in his glorification at his right hand. Now, certainly you would say, well, I'm not there now. How can I be seated there? I am secure in Christ in the same way that my resurrection has been secured, even though I've not experienced it yet, even though my salvation has been fully secured, even though I've not experienced to the full yet, my ascension and glorification is as secure because as Christ is there, so am I according to God's record. When God sees me, he knows me in Christ already seated in him. I already have a place in glory in Christ because of what God has done in me by giving me life through his mercy, grace, and love. I think about it kind of like uh, my son and I, we had an invitation to go to a, a basketball game in Orlando. And, and it wasn't just free tickets to be up in the nosebleed, but these were tickets that were going to have almost court-level seating. We were one row away from court-level. And these tickets had with them uh, the pass that goes into the to the really schwanky buffet restaurant back behind the, uh, the, uh, the, the court where all the rich folks go to have all they can eat from a, a slew of buffets back there. This ticket was very valuable. And I wasn't at or, uh, in Orlando when that ticket became mine. My buddy calls me. He says, let's go to the basketball game. You need to come. It's yours. You bring your son and we're going to have a great time. It wasn't mine yet, but it was mine. I said, how am I going to get the tickets? He says, they'll be waiting on you at the will call. The will call window is there at the ticket booth. The ticket booth's where you buy tickets, but not me. No, me and Rhett went to the will call window. And the, the lady asked, uh, can I help you? And I said, yes, we have some tickets available for us. I gave her my name. She handed me the tickets into the buffet. We went and the game we enjoyed. Now, certainly that illustration breaks down, but very similar. My stuff is there in Christ. My place is there with him. When it's my time, whether by death or by Christ's return, I'm not going to have to bargain with the Apostle Peter, as the jokes all say, to get through the gates. No, I'm secure in him because I'm seated in him because of what God has done for me through him. He's made me alive. He's raised me up. 
He's given me new life. He's seated with me in Christ. And if we look backward to what we've already learned, He's given me everything I need to accomplish what He's called me to do in this life between now and then. We were dead in our sins, but God made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. My citizenship is in heaven, according to Philippians 3.20. It's not on this earth. It's with Him wherever He is. That's my destination. And what Christ has experienced physically, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, glorification, we experience today spiritually while we wait on the physical that will be ours as well. Verse number 7. Why did God do all of this? Why would He do this? So that, verse 7, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All of this is for God's glory. So that on that day when we are made holy and blameless, as chapter 1 verse 4 says God intends to do, on that day we might stand before Him and that God might declare to all that He has made, look at what they are now because of what I have done in them. They once were dead. They were my enemy. They had no desire for me. They thumbed their nose at me. They were unwanting of anything to do with me. But I stepped into them anyway, and I brought them to myself of my own will, of my own accord, of my own doing. I brought them to me, and look at what I've done to those who were walking dead. With no hope, he's going to say in just a few verses from now, but I stepped in and did for them what they could not do. And then verse 8 and 9 gives us that formula that every follower of Jesus has had to wrestle to and with, that every unbeliever needs to hear from the lips of someone who has seen this become a reality in their life. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, And that not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God says, here's how it works in mathematical formula. Salvation is by grace through faith. Salvation, being brought from death to life, being brought out of the darkness and placed into the light, being adopted by your Creator and brought into His family, being born anew by the, by the work of God in your life. Salvation is by grace. The basis of your salvation and mine, the basis of your Christianity and mine is God's grace and God's grace alone. Don't ever let anyone say when the question is asked, how do I become a Christian? How does someone become a Christian? Don't ever say all they got to do is pray. You say someone becomes a Christian by God's grace. Because apart from God's grace, it don't happen. Salvation is based on God's 
grace to us and nothing else. No merit of yours, no, 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 anything you bring to offer him as a, as a, a, a payment, it's just God's grace. I say that, that in this formula or in this illustration, it is the ticket and the bus. God's grace. It's the basis. For you and I going from where we were to where we are, it is the ticket and the bus and the driver. What is faith? Because salvation is by grace through faith. The basis is God's grace, but faith is the means. It's the instrument. It's the response. Faith simply means to trust or to have confidence in. Or my favorite uh, uh, definition is to be reliant upon, to believe. Faith is the means, it's the instrument, it's the response. It's the decision to get on the bus. It's the decision to take the ticket and hand it to the driver and ride wherever he's taking us. Faith is not a work but faith is a decision. It is a, it, is a, it is a volitional, a voluntary. It is an act of the will decision to trust that the death and resurrection of Jesus is sufficient for you, is sufficient for me to bring me into the family of God, which is all by His grace. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's the gift of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says it's the free gift. Of, I'm sorry, Romans 6, 23 says it's the free gift of God. If, if I have to pay for a gift, it's not a gift. A gift comes at the expense of the giver. And it's mine because of the gracious intent of their heart. They extend it to us and all we can do is take it and receive it. It's the gift of God. It's not by your works, because if it was, you'd brag about it. And you'd compare yourself to one another. God says if you're going to compare yourself to one another, do it in verses 1 through 3. And look around you and find anybody else associated with mankind and recognize that you're just as dead as they are. You were just as sinful as they are. You might not have been acting out all of your sin, but you were no less dead. He was dead and she was dead and they were dead and you were dead and I was dead. If you're going to compare yourself, compare yourself the way you were as unbelievers. Dead and incapable. But when it comes to salvation, you can't compare yourself to one another unless you're going to compare yourself to the grace of God extended, because it's all of Him and nothing of us, so that we would not boast. We've seen the way we were. We've seen the work of God for us. And now in verse number 10, He's going to show us the path forward. Because there's a path of, of life, new life, to be lived between now and the glorification that we will enjoy in the return of Jesus in the resurrection. There's today. So what is today for, for the follower of Jesus? He says it in brief. For we are 
His workmanship, created in Christ, new creations, remember, 1 Corinthians 5, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what, what is the, the path forward to those who know Jesus as Savior? To live out the life that God had prepared for us. To become and allow Him in His working to make us into the work of art that He desires. His masterpiece, His workmanship. We can't boast in our salvation, but God sure can. God can display in us His masterful work of art as we live out His calling, that confident calling that we have. As we live out His purpose as His valuable son and daughter. As we live out the things that He's called us to do with immeasurable power to accomplish that and all that we need in benefits and blessings secured with Him. We are His workmanship, moving from where we were to where we will be, all in the progress of His purpose. To live out those good works that He's prepared for. So what are these good works? Well, it's not what you go and do for God. It's not you going out and working hard for God. That's sweet and all. But God has real life stuff prepared for you that He wants you to enter into. He wants you to step into His purpose that He's already prepared for you to walk in. Jesus, when He was talking to His disciples about the correlation between Him, the vine, and we, the branches, He says when we are vitally connected to the vine, the vine produces in the branches fruit, more fruit, much fruit. And that the vine dresser, the Father, is actively working in the life of the vine and the branches to bring about more and more fruit. What is that fruit? We learn about it in Galatians. When Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that God is, is creating and producing us, is a character of love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, patience, uh, long-suffering... It's God pushing the life of Jesus out of our life into the preview of those watching and living around us. It's the process that, that the kid's song, He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. What is Jesus making or what is God making me? He's making me to look and sound and think and respond and act like His Son, our Savior. Even today, he's wanting to push the character and the characteristics of Jesus out of our life into the view of the watching world for his glory. We're his workmanship. We're his masterpiece. We are, as followers of Jesus, a piece of clay in the hand of God being molded and shaped like He desires us to be for His glory. We don't have to stress over what that calling and what those works are because He's already prepared them. We just got to walk in obedience to Christ. We've got to walk in obedience to God's Word. And we will be walking into the good works that God has called us to.
The Holy Spirit will lead us and push us into the direction of those good works that God has infinitely prepared for us. This is your life, Christian. It's the way you were. It's what God did for you that only God could do for you. And it's the way forward. As we think about how to respond to this, Christian, I think we just got to prayerfully ask ourselves, am I living out the path forward or is it possible that having left that life of following the course of the world and following the dictates of the enemy or doing what I think is best for me and, and what seems right to me, I wonder if we haven't, as followers of Jesus, wandered back over into the death life, trying to follow Jesus and live according to the dictates of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think we ought to prayerfully say, God, am I, am I right now living out the path forward? Am I right now conforming to your desire for me as your masterpiece? A am I submitting to you and walking that forward into those fruitful works that you have prepared for me? I think we should prayerfully ask ourselves, are we living that out as followers of Jesus? If not, we need to repent. We need to confess that as sin. And some of those we might be able to be specific in. God, I've allowed this worldview to overtake my mind. God, I've allowed this lie of the enemy to give me a path forward. God, I've allowed my own fleshly desires to lead me. And I need to confess that as sin. I need to repent of that. And God, I ask you to bring me back in line so that I might represent that work of art that you're wanting and desiring to make me. God, let me walk in the works that you have already determined for me, for your glory. I think that would be a healthy way for every one of us to respond. I certainly think when we talk about salvation, we need to take all of our information right there from this little section, specifically verses 8 and 9. When we talk about God, we talk about Jesus, we talk about what it means to be a Christian, may we never talk about going to church and doing right and paying taxes and being a good person. May that never come out of our mouth. May we always talk about God reaching into the death that we all are apart from Him and giving us life by His grace and only through faith and only through Jesus, through His work on the cross in our place and for our sin, crucified and risen. I wonder if maybe you're listening and you've never trusted Jesus. You've never placed your reliance upon Him. You've never surrendered yourself and put your confidence totally and completely on what He has said about Himself and you. Today would be a great day, especially if God is pulling on your heart and He's drawing you, He's showing you, He's turning the light on in your heart and mind. 
I want to invite you, just surrender, just trust. God, I'm a sinner, I'm dead, and you've shown me this, and I'm, I'm realizing that Jesus died. It's your grace, your mercy, your love, and, and, and you allowed your son to die for me, and you raised him from the dead, and salvation can be mine only by your grace, and I'm placing my tr- trust and faith in him and him alone. Today would be a great day to trust him. And I'd love to talk to you more about it. Christian, today would be a great day to evaluate your life. Are you pushing forward? Or have you turned backwards? Today would be a great day to say, God, I need you to bring me back to the path that my feet should be walking on. Because I know that's where you want me and ultimately that's where I want to be. Christian, you're not what you were because of what God has done for you. Now let's walk that out by faith, regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of what others are doing, regardless of what anybody else says. Let's press forward by faith in Christ toward those things that He has prepared for us today while we wait on all that is ours to come. Let me pray for you and we'll be done. Father, I thank you for the day. I thank you for the word. God, I thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. I thank you that salvation is ours only because of your work in our life. God, I pray that you will draw your children out of the the turning back that we may have done, out of the course of this world, out of the the dictates of the enemy, certainly out of following after our own lust, if we've wandered back into those arenas, walking with the dead, I pray that you'll turn that light on, that we might see it, confess it, repent, turn, and follow again that course of your work of art that you desire to make in us. And I pray that you'll call us back to that. I pray for that one who needs to trust Jesus. May today be the day that they surrender themselves to you by faith in Him. God, give us the courage to face these ongoing days of frustration like Jesus would. Give us the attitude that the world needs to see. Give us the responses that the world needs to witness in our life. God, give us the courage to herald the gospel to those who are looking for hope because in the gospel is the only real hope that is available to anyone. May we be champions of the salvation that is available to us because of your great grace. We love you. We trust you. We look forward to what's in store. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, God the Son, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Praise the Lord. His mercy is His mercy.